you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Win Win Podcast, and also happy Pride Month. There is so much to celebrate about the LGBTQIA community and some of the amazing innovators that identify as such, and I think today's conversation is really timely with the discussion around gender as a whole and what it means to be an ally to women. You will, of course, hear all about it, but today's guest is non-binary, and Grace's pronouns are they and them. We've never had a non-binary guest before, and I had a really meaningful conversation with Grace when we first connected on the importance of allyship and how, once they let go of their female identity, Grace was able to be a better ally to women, and that's one of the reasons why they wanted to come on today and share their story of innovation as well as personal life. Grace's role as Chief Experience Officer at Karmarama, an Accenture interactive company. They're really passionate about design thinking and the role of intersectionality as a key driver in innovation. One of the really exciting things about the role of chief experience officer is that I do think it is largely misunderstood and perhaps even misdefined as it does have so many different applications depending on the company and its product. Grace has long been a pioneer of really having that conversation, and we also really dive deeper into what it means to innovate experience, especially when the notion of experience has changed so drastically throughout time, and especially in a during and post-COVID world. With that, I'm so excited to share today's episode with you all, and I hope you enjoy this very inspiring conversation. Hi, Grace. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. Yes, me too. We have so many amazing topics to talk about ahead of this episode. But I think just starting with your career, so much of it is entangled with content-driven or content-first roles. And, you know, today when we think about content, that really does embody so much and how people experience their favorite brands and products. So 10 years ago, when you were head of content at IG, a financial trading and betting platform, that was not necessarily the case. So back then when you were just starting out, what did working in content mean? And at the time, was chief experience officer a role or a career path that you could embark on? Yeah, it's a really good question. So thinking back to those 10 years ago, those early product days, content felt like the building blocks of an experience, but we weren't even really using the idea of experience It wasn't about um, grabbing attention and being attention merchants. It was about fulfilling a very specific contextual need, uh, very blinkered in its view. So you could achieve a task through content, but in no way could you think about emotional resonance or brands. And yet a chief experience officer didn't exist as a title. And we weren't thinking about a holistic experience from one moment to the next or how we connect with brands and people and what that that resonance and humanity could mean at all. We were just thinking about the job in front of us, the next building block and the next one. And so at what point do you feel like the disruption of those notion happened and what do you think caused it? 
I think when we started to look at the value of content independently, uh, something to engage us, to provoke us, to entertain us, and realizing that there is this incredible thirst as humans um, to have something in front of us that is fulfilling. And, and today, you know, we um, we might be sitting on TikTok, we might be sitting on 24-hour news cycles, or switching between the two, something very heavy and something very light. But really, it was starting to realize that content itself um, was something to uh, tease and offer value and to provide rather than something incredibly functional within the context. It wasn't about, I need to know what's going on on a financial channel right now. Um, I need to know something precise and specific according to um, a preordained idea. It was, um, I'm existing as a human and I want something in front of me. Yeah, I, I think that's very interesting. And I, I think what's even more interesting is is how you continued on with your career and that the next, you know, role that you took on and the and the one of your really first experience roles was at the iconic advertising agency, Gray. So you spent uh, a few years building out the experience strategy and design offerings. So when it comes to really implementing uh, experience design and innovation within an organization that is typically so traditionally skewed towards more commercial driven work, advertising driven work, what were the key takeaways and challenges of, of building that out there? So a lot of it was about convincing others that we were in the right place to do that work. So when I I got a call from a headhunter originally saying, would you like a head of innovation role at Gray? And I was working at a big tech unit at the time. I was working for a Dentsu Ages company. And all of my colleagues said, don't take it. What they mean by innovation and what you mean by innovation are very different. This is fluffy. This is light. This is tech toys. Also, there was the threat that taking the title innovation meant as soon as the winds changed, if, if a client was lost or a pocket of money got moved, the innovation person would be out. And I saw this opportunity to start talking about how experience as we see it from a product point of view, if we think about UX or even customer experience, a very, very tangible one person to a, a one brand connection actually is intrinsically linked to brand experience and our semiotic views of how brands exist in the world today. But so much of that original work was turning up in a room saying to people, the thing I'm doing belongs in an advertising agency. The thing I do and the thing you do aren't a million miles apart. They are both acts of persuasion and they both allow us to make great leaps that are beyond logic. They don't have to seem rational, um, but they can make an incredible impact. Wow. So, so much to unpack there. I want to go back to the first thing you said, and that was your definition of innovation varied from theirs. And you touched a little bit on what their definition of innovation meant, but at the time, what was your definition of innovation and, and has that changed actually through all the work that you've done? I think, I think if your definition of innovation isn't continuously changing, then it's not innovation. Um, mm. But in that time where I was sitting in a large tech organization, we were looking at the tools available to us. We were thinking about how do I benefit a business using technology and what ways can I bend or break the existing tools? Going back to content in those early days of Instagram, how can we 
push away from the algorithm? Um, how can we use tools that were designed for one feature and co-opt them for a business or a brand? And we always see this when there's an emerging platform. Um, it's not always day one that businesses and brands have a space to play or have been given a space to play. And I really liked that ability to say, let's break everything, try anything uh, to get what we need to done within the limits of uh, the technology, the resource, the time and the energy that we have. Yeah. And when you are actually, you know, coming in and, and trying to break things, if you will, you definitely still needed to collaborate with the people that were brand focused or uh, true advertisement or creative focus. So how are you able to bridge those gaps and actually get the buy-in of the people on the day-to-day that you weren't just a siloed function, you were truly a collaborator and an accelerator of innovation in the organization? And it, yeah, it's... um. It's probably the greatest superpower I've taken with me, which is the knowledge that influence is always more potent than power. Power says, I can tell you what to do and you will be doing it because I have a job title and you don't. Um, I have a pay packet and you don't. I have innate privilege um, for my intersectional identity and you don't. But if we're looking at influence, we're talking about how to say to people, you want to work with me because I have something of value to give. And it, unfortunately, it still today seems like a radical idea. But I believe very much in creating pockets of influence where we strip away job titles, hierarchy, discipline, and we're just smart people in a room. If, uh, if we were stranded on a desert island, my data strategist wouldn't say there's no data work to be done here and fold their arms. They would pick up a bucket and go and find fresh water. And so by disassembling those power structures and those hierarchies, those borders and boundaries for an hour at a time on one challenge after another, I was slowly able to ask people to come into a room and do some different work, do some great work with me. That also meant on the other side of things, when I was invited into a room, letting go of my ego and doing work that might have been 10 years uh, previous in my career. I'm just rolling up my sleeves and jumping in to show I have something to contribute. And I don't mind doing that. And I've kept that even today. I mean, let's dive deeper into that. I, I, I think what you're saying about the breaking down those hierarchies, super, super fascinating. Yet, you know, I, I have to say that a, a lot of um, the innovation work that happens and a lot of the corporate innovation work that happens is still within those corporate structures, right? So you still have to convince somebody that you are worthy of this XYZ job title or this position in the company. So before you even get into those companies, what was it like for you getting your foot in the door? And, you know, how had that changed as you've uh, progressed in your career? Yeah, I think the most significant change I've seen is the confidence to be authentic in myself and to live with that identity, knowing that some doors will close. And I never know which doors close because of chance or because of prejudice. But when I started out, um, I was raised in a household where many respects weren't traditional and um, many things were difficult. But one of the advantages was I wasn't fully aware of the limitations and prejudice of gender identity. So when I, when I grew up and started my career identifying as a cis woman, perhaps because I didn't know how else to identify, I didn't have any other words for it. Um, I was walking into rooms and thinking if I was getting a bad response, it was bad luck. I wasn't aware of the prejudice or the system against me. And that naivety, that ignorance was in many ways a blessing 
because I just continue to move forward, not recognizing why those things might be difficult for me. Sometimes we talk about the confidence of a mediocre white guy, and it's, it's a punchline, it's a joke, and we need to be careful about everybody's lived experience, including cishet white men. But for me, it was it was exactly that. It was moving through, not realizing that the deck was stacked against me. When I did realize in the middle of my career, it was a horrible shock. It was absolutely terrible. And this is, you know, an awakening that some of us get earlier than others. I have the um, fortunate privilege of continuing being able to mask. People might not know my gender identity. Um, People might not know that I don't have any formal education, but I have the privilege of walking into a room as a white person continually. And that gets me through the first three or four doors, um, Mm -hmm. which isn't afforded to anyone else. And so on a personal level, you've let go of a cisgender identity and you go by them and they. So at what point in your career did you start voicing that? And what has that journey been like professionally and personally? It's been really interesting and it continues even now. And we, we speak quite a lot about the idea of coming out, uh, being being a queer person anyway, and coming out throughout the day to your dentist or a receptionist. You get your hair cut and someone says, oh, is this for your boyfriend? And you say, I don't have a boyfriend or whatever it might be. Um, and when we right. look at gender identity, there's a, there's a huge complexity in that, especially with gender expression. So I spent many years without a form of words and saying to people, well, I feel I have a woman's body and a man's brain, which is is actually entirely inaccurate, but the only tools available to me, I'm wired more like a man. These are my interests. These are the way I think. Mm. And um, that continued for many, many years until I realized that that was a shorthand representation to fit in a box that other people could accept. And actually, there was a far better representation, which is to say, Politically and personally, I do not align with the construct of gender. I do not feel I fit in this box. My body doesn't fit in this box. My brain doesn't fit in this box. But even if it did, I'm not sure politically I would stand for um, the way I am treated as a cis woman. Ironically, I've marginalized myself further as a non-binary person, but um, the authenticity (laughs) balances it out really well when I go to sleep at night. I find that it's really interesting the way that you describe gender and the way you describe that journey, because I feel like one of the tools that innovators specifically have is not being boxed into something or maybe acknowledging that there is a systemic box, but that true innovation lies outside of it and doesn't have shape or form to it. Do you think that, you know, your gender identity and the way that you think about gender identity has to do with why you've gone into the innovation industry, maybe on a subconscious level? Yes, I think absolutely it is because it's a place where it's permissible to question a rule, to disregard a rule, to challenge whether rules have a place in the room at all. Uh, And that continual breaking of barriers of saying, it doesn't matter that we've done it this way, what if there's a better way and I'm going to determine the better way, uh, is intrinsically part of my role as an innovator and intrinsically part um, of my role as, as a human being existing in society today. And I think what's also really interesting about your trajectory is that you have largely been on the agency side for the majority of your career. And so part of that role is interesting because while you may be set free from those boundaries uh, that brands and companies put on themselves, those companies themselves, it's very hard to get the ball moving for them. So how have you been able to integrate design thinking and push the clients into your practice? And and when there has been pushback, what is your approach to handling that? 
So I think design thinking is incredible as a, a structural tool because we're continually looking at empathy and interrogation of what's in front of us. And um, I think a lot of the time, I believe radical empathy, looking at the person in front of you, even a person of extreme privilege and recognizing part of that human condition is that they themselves have stresses and fears and concerns and good days and bad days, um, allows me to essentially use design thinking to introduce the concept of design thinking as something that is useful and present. So it's very meta. And uh, that allows you to combine the very, very logical reasoning, interrogation and evidence-based thought of why some an idea might be a good way to do something and why a process might be useful, why design thinking itself is potent, but also to empathise, why am I getting a block in front of me? Is this person worried about the company changing? Are they worried that they won't be able to use this tool? Are they worried that my influence over the company detracts from their influence over the company? Does it feel like we're moving too fast? And all of these things um, allow us to start saying, well, what are the practical human barriers? I wish we didn't have to do that. I wish we didn't. We were in a space where we could just sit down and get some amazing work done. But the, the housework, the effort of bringing people on side so they themselves feel open and interested to take part in the innovation itself is actually incredibly rewarding because you see these transformations of people who fold their arms and say, I don't want anything to do with this. This is not what I do. And then at the end, they themselves are empowered to make change and they can see you don't have to stay within the box of the brief. We can do something different. Wouldn't you like to be part of that? And then looking at the effects of that on your average employee who's perhaps doesn't have a seat at the leadership table, as you kind of discussed, if this new innovation or this process and system comes to them, what is the advice that you would give that person to be able to integrate with this new process or perhaps have an opportunity to challenge or question it as a more junior employee? I think it begins by asking if that employee themselves are minoritized or marginalized in any way. And one of the things I really want to express is if you are junior in your career and you are minoritized or marginalized, the first thing I'd like you to do is to set up boundaries to protect yourself. Your job is to make sure you have what you need and to advocate clearly for what you might need. Uh, that might be finding peers or um, superiors. It might be your direct boss. It might be someone else who identifies in a similar way that you do as an advocate. So they might be in a completely different part of the company to first protect that space for yourself. I think until that space is protected, looking at disruption, looking at innovation has to come second. It's not your job to dismantle the machine from within. If you are a person of privilege and you are in a junior role, I think you do have more of a chance to express that. Um, and in doing so, one of the things I would say is innovation cannot occur unless there are diverse people in the room. And more than that, uh, empathy alone is not enough. So we, in fact, need um, not just diversity people at the table. We need inclusion, those people being able to share their opinion, their views, their lived experience to make the product better, to make the end result better. It makes me think about this notion, right? I mean, sometimes when you think about resistance and and uh, or, or change, often the word that comes to mind is no. 
But also when you think about innovation, to me, innovation resonates with the word yes, as far as saying yes to the change that's coming, yes to breaking existing systems. Would you say that innovation is more about saying no to things or or more about saying yes? I think it's about saying maybe to things and maybe is such a safe space. One of the things I've really enjoyed coming up through a product and tech space is not needing to say, I have the answer and I will die on my sword until it's true. It's saying, is it this? Maybe. Is it that? Maybe. The freedom to roll and evolve with a form of thinking and maybe is very hard for anyone to close a door to because it can it can shift if we need if we need a concept um, or a solution to move in a different direction and someone wants it to. All they need to do is to take part, to steer it. And within that, I think there's always the idea that no to me is a synonym for I am scared or I don't understand. And if you can if you can determine if it's this is a threat to me or I cannot comprehend what's going on, you can get rid of no's all day. I absolutely love that and I agree. And I think there's a lot to be said about the plasticity, flexibility that exists uh, in order to create innovation or in order to foster good innovation, if you will, whatever that may mean. I guess something else that I was wondering about is with that approach of maybe and the flexibility, you do work at a company that is owned by Accenture, right? And so when you think about Accenture, it's, it's just such a large corporation. So knowing that innovation is flexible and knowing that it takes time and is not linear, how are you approaching measuring successes and failures and communicating them in a way to really continue showing the value of innovation and uh, experience? So I'm really fortunate in that the the section of the acquisition I work in belongs to Accenture Interactive, which is around about 11 or 12,000 people across the globe, headed up by Brian Whipple. And there's a real agenda started from him, but that moves throughout Interactive, which is about innovation and, and that being measured through what has not been done before and what purpose are we pushing for that. And that combination of innovation through the lens of tech, exactly where I started my career, and deep purpose. How can we use the tools, the intellect, the resource, the energy that we have to make significant change is the ultimate measure for me. And it's really wonderful to be part of an organization that is doing that so actively to the point where there are business units to say, if we see something that is truly innovative, um, we will support it with resource and time and energy to make sure it can be the very best version of itself. It doesn't have to be a version one, what is needed. And sometimes I'm on the telephone to someone halfway across the world who's a business designer um, or who's doing uh, some complex data modeling for me. And other times uh, someone is writing a metaphorical check to say, here is this many hours um, of time your team can devote to making this better. The client doesn't need to pay for it. We are about getting it to the top of the agenda. And that belief in innovation as the way forward, as the new future, is one of the main reasons I get up in the morning and I'm, I'm pleased. I'm pleased when I see an, an advert for Accenture on my television. Yeah, I, I, I can understand that having that support is, is so key in fostering that uh, culturally as well as actually getting you to your goals. But in your role specifically as chief experience officer, I've heard you speak about what that role actually means and describe what it is that you actually do. But what I find really interesting about this role or one of the many things is that the notion of experience is truly so broad and varied, uh, the same way that innovation as a function is so can be so broad and varied. 
married. It can be about how someone interacts with your brand at a point of sale retail shop or the way that someone describes a product to you as you're riding the subway. So how are you able to stay focused on the core experience and delivering on that innovation while having to account for so many steps of the consumer journey? Yeah, it's, um, it can be very overwhelming. And I think that switch between the granularity of fixing a single moment in a consumer journey and looking at the semiotics or a brand, how a brand is perceived um, in the collective consciousness of any culture, even before we consider shopping with them, you know, that's a very, very wide space to be in. Mm-hmm. For me, so much of it now is about my duty to corporations as they become leaders on the world stage. I think we're at a point in history where uh, corporations are no longer faceless. And if we are looking at seismic change, uh, and that can be for the positive or that can just be seismic change, um, you need an organized body to do that. That might be government, that might be academia, um, that might be a platform like TikTok, or of course it's a corporation. And then even more so, we're at a point in history where a 10-year-old knows the name and the face of the person who founded Amazon. The definition of fame is starting to change. So when you start to see um, the humanity, and I don't mean in in their performance, but the fact that there is a real person um, behind these large corporations or a set of people in a board, my duty is as much about saying, how do I use and leverage the power that corporation has to affect positive change in whatever form, um, alongside this very, very granular element of saying, how am I going to help you get your shopping home in an easier way? Right. And I think, you know, thinking about experience one step further, the notion of experience was totally toppled through COVID. Taking the employee experience, for example, both you and I started new roles in COVID. And I can tell you on my end, it's it's been a very different and isolated experience. I have such a strong team, but my experience of what an employee at my company, it has been very different than someone who started with an office full of people and shared lunch breaks and water cooler conversations about you know the change that we want to be making, the positive impact that we want to be making. And so what is experience in a post-COVID world to you and and how do we rethink experience now that flexibility is or should be an inherent part of it? I think experience is fundamentally about the accountability of corporations, of understanding who would have thought if you are um, a supermarket delivery provider uh, that you could be holding lives of people in your hands. That's not that's not something that would ever normally occur. The weight of that as a corporation and what that corporation needs to do becomes incredibly interesting. But the connection between a large organization, whatever its goal, and many, many individuals who are the patrons um, is getting intrinsically linked. So post-COVID experience has to be about that value exchange. Um, as we get back our autonomy and our agency, we've been trapped in a lot of invisible prisons. Um, in the time we've been in COVID, one of the things we can do is start voting with the pounds in our pocket. And I think we're seeing people changing energy providers. We're seeing people changing lifestyle choices of the kind of uh, things they buy, where they buy them from, um, because it's a way to gain back control and it's a way to take accountability. So suddenly these relationships between a corporation and the many individuals they provide has to be more intimate. It has to be more accountable, has to be more transparent. And I think that can only be a good thing. Absolutely. 
And something that I'm really excited about and, and a big reason that I feel like our conversation today has been so special and having you on been so special is I, I really do feel like you're a pioneer in the space of, of both holding yourself and your industry and clients really, really accountable. But something else that I find really special is that today when you came on the Women in Innovation podcast, you came on as an ally to women. So before I ask you our last innovation question, I did want to hear more about ways that you found yourself as an ally to women by letting go of your identity and and what others can really learn from that as they experience working in corporations, startups, or uh, in other innovation functions and beyond. Yeah, it's um, it's been a very interesting process letting go of my cisgendered identity and identity as a woman and being so passionate for feminism and recognizing what women deserve. Uh, I think I've become a better ally in that I now am able to see all women because I no longer identify as one. So when I was a woman, I was living as a a white, privileged, educated, middle class person living in London, able bodied. And um, I thought about being a woman as walking home at night after after work drinks and the fear of getting home safely on the tube. I thought of sexual attack. Um, I thought of the gender pay gap. And when I stepped away from being a woman and authentically saw myself as non-binary outside of gender as a system, I was very ably, able to clearly see I have been sitting in the space of my own experience and privilege, and now I can look at women far more holistically um, and intersectionally, and I want to be an ally for all women and better understand their experiences. I was um, talking to a colleague the other day who had an ambition, and they came to me and they said, um, I want to change banking for women. Um, I want to be. I want to have a brief that says, Um, Look, over a lifetime, men have more expendable income to invest. Products are designed for men's interpretation of risk, an industry that benefits from connections, often old school connections between men, Mm -hmm. the right name, the right school, the right dinner parties. And it's a really laudable ambition. But the chances are when we picture the woman in our heads, most groups are still thinking about a white woman, a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied woman. And when we're given the opportunity to dismantle power structures, we can't do it for one group at the cost of others. We must do it for all. So I hope now my role as an ally toward women is being able to understand the fully intersectional encompassment for anyone who also identifies as a woman, whether that's a cis woman or a trans woman, and everything that in, that contains. Um, I also think I, because I sit in such a marginalised and minoritised space in my industry, Uh, I can say things and not be punished um, in the way that a woman might be. I sit outside of the framework. People don't know how to place me. Men don't know how to place me. And therefore, I believe I have a duty to uh, speak up and not worry about the consequences uh, because I am sitting. I am such an anomaly. I can't be put in a box. Incredible. And and thank you so much for sharing that and sharing your personal and professional experience and truly excited to keep watching you dismantle these systems and support you on your way. And I'd love to ask you one last innovation question, and that is where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? So I think in a month we will start to find human connection and remind ourselves of all of the signals that we see when we're working together um, in spaces, reconnecting 
uh, and we're going to lose our telepathy. Um, we have this form of telepathy at the moment where we sit on screens and we can text each other our, our back channel thoughts. Sometimes that's great. It leads to a really powerful presentation because we're telling our colleagues, hey, the client's interested in X. Please talk about that more. I've noticed this thing. Please change it. But also it means we're not talking directly. And that's going to be a real shock to us. Uh, innovation, I think, is about transparency and about putting everything out on the table. I think in a year's time, I hope to see that I'm working with more brands who are coming to me with briefs that are intrinsically about the role they have to play in the world. And I want to be there. Some of the most exciting briefs I'm getting at the moment come from very surprising big box corporations who are saying we want to do something different. We want to be of relevance. What can we do? How do we make those step changes? But then in 10 years time, I hope that we have moved away from a service industry, from a subservient role that we play to our clients, um, giving an answer and hoping it's the right one to a partnership, to a true partnership where we are measured and we are paid uh, for work and the impact that work can have, whether it takes a day, whether it takes a year. Um, the result of that work, the impact of that work is how we are judged as opposed to the model many of us exist in right now, which is this many hours for this much time. Thank you so, so much, Grace. Um, I'm excited to see where you go and, and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win Women in Innovation and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.